This week on Geeksplain, to celebrate the Blu-ray release of Avengers Endgame, I'm going to talk about Captain America. That's it. That's the intro. Welcome back to Geeksplain, the podcast for comics, film, TV, and more. You name it, we explain it. I'm your host, Eric Azana, and today's episode is all about Captain America. That's it. I'm just going to talk about Captain America because I want to. And because Avengers Endgame officially releases this week on Blu-ray. Uh, really excited. I have already watched it on digital probably like two or three times uh, since it dropped. I think it was like last week or the week before, something around there. But um, I'm definitely going to be watching it more. But uh, watching it again, I really wanted to just kind of talk about Captain America and why I love his arc, everything that goes into him, uh, just his character development, his story arc, his uh, character growth, his development throughout all of the MCU, at least through the uh, Infinity Saga. Plus, on top of that, we've also got this week's weekly review, which we are debuting with The Boys. Episode 1, we're going to be checking out. Really, really excited to talk about that. And of course, we have this week's Comics Countdown with some real gems to check out. But for now, let's jump on over to this week's news. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we've got some news for you today. Um, lots of uh, film and TV news, not a lot of uh, comic news. Uh, it was kind of a kind of a slow week, but uh, we're gonna kick it off with some film news. And first off, kind of some uh, some negative news. Um, Disney, apparently, according to reports, hates New Mutants. What is New Mutants, you may be asking? Well, it was the final X-Men film that was being developed by Fox. Um, and it's it looked interesting. I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. The trailer looked really interesting. It's basically a horror take on the X-Men. Uh, from what it looked like, the cast of the New Mutants comic, we're talking Wolfsbane, Onion Rasputin, characters like that, uh, were... It looks like uh, imprisoned in like an insane asylum, and then like um, they're being like haunted by the asylum itself or by another mutant's powers. It looked interesting. It looked pretty cool, um, and it was supposed to come out like this year, like in February. And it's like every single time we get close to when the uh, release date is, it gets pushed back another like six to eight months, and. Apparently now we know why. Um, Disney still has cold feet at the moment because they don't think it will be as marketable as your normal superhero flick. Uh, they have a lot of reservations on it being more of a niche thing with it being in the horror um, realm. And boy, if that's the case, they're going to be surprised by Scott Derrickson, Scott Doctor Strange, and the Multiverse of Madness. Um, 
but I just I think it's uh, it's a shame because this was like the final thing that they were working on for the X Men universe, uh, which is hilarious when you think about how big of a quote unquote finale uh, Dark Phoenix was supposed to be. But I, I'm interested. I'm interested in seeing it. It looks really interesting. I doubt at this point if it's going to get a theatrical release or not, uh, since Fox had a pretty big stake in Hulu and now Disney owns that. I would assume that it would be kind of uh, eventually released on there just because it seems like the plan from rumors that are going on is that uh, Hulu is going to be the place for all the more adult content that they don't want in Disney+. Plus. So we'll see. Uh, next up, speaking of X-Men, uh, something really interesting. Uh, there was a, I believe it was the lead writer on X-Men First Class uh, was talking to, I don't know exactly who is doing an interview and the uh the origin of magneto was brought up since that's a huge deal in the uh the film x-men first class and the question was brought up that now that we are going into the 2020s um and at that point you know by the time that uh x-men films rebooted or otherwise uh come out it will have been a very long time since the creation of the x-men and of magneto um the question comes up of how the uh i guess how the origin of magneto should be handled because if you think about it when you're talking about time uh magneto's big crux the big thing that shapes his character in every story that he's featured in is that he is a holocaust survivor um but if we're looking at it from a current day standpoint, if he did end up being a Holocaust survivor and he ends up becoming the X-Men's biggest villain, you know, in the 2020s and beyond, um, that'll have happened a long, long time ago. We're talking upwards of 70 to 80 years. So Magneto at his absolute youngest would be late 80s, early 90s by the time that we get to him in the films and so the writer wanted to posit the idea of updating um, Magneto's origin to possibly have him be the survivor of something else like some other kind of atrocity that happened um, I thought I think I saw something about um, a lot of different cultural atrocities that have happened in the last 50 years that could be brought in and kind of freshen up and update Magneto's character. Um, I think it's interesting. I think it's an interesting take. Um, on a side note, Giancarlo Esposito apparently has expressed interest in playing the character, and oh my god, would he do amazing. But I, I'm not sure. I, I think that him being a holocaust survivor is very uh intrinsic to his character but i will say that there that there is some wiggle room when it comes to that um he could either be the uh the child of a holocaust survivor or um he could end up being the survivor of like a different uh cultural atrocity that it happened because the big thing about 
Magneto's character when it comes to the Holocaust isn't just his Jewish heritage. It's the idea that he was oppressed and he doesn't want to see anyone else oppressed for being who they are. And whether that's taken to the extreme in certain cases, that is his his pathos. That is his driving force. And so if they if played right, I believe they could make that work. But if they're able to keep in the Holocaust backstory for him, I think that's going to enrich the character. However, I don't know um, if keeping him as a Holocaust survivor and him being an 80 to 90 year old uh, Magneto facing off against the mutants exactly works. Um, and I've heard like some people throw out like, oh, well, you know, we'll just say that his mutant gene is slowed as aging. There has been no, and I mean no, comic accurate um, evidence to back that up at any point. He has been de-aged in the comics multiple times, that is absolutely true. But his mutant gene, his mutant power, is on magnetic fields and controlling metal and all of that stuff. It is not to de-age him. So just haphazardly slapping that onto his, um, his mutant abilities doesn't make sense and it feels like a cheap, uh, a cheap fix for an otherwise really big plot hole for a character. So I don't want to go too far into it, but like those are just kind of my basic thoughts on it. Um, I also, this past week, watched the home release of Batman Hush. Uh, Batman Hush did come out last week, and it's fine. Uh, <laughs> I wish I could say that it was it was better than that, but it's it's fine. They take out a lot of the stuff that makes the story of Hush, Hush, and I really think that them trying to fit it into the continuity that they're setting up with the animated films really hindered the story rather than um, enrich it with the flavor of the stuff that they had been putting out. And I just, man, they changed so much of it, and I really... Um, if it wasn't a story about Hush, the story could have been good. But because they slapped on the Batman Hush uh, title and they used those characters in the basic plot line, it really comes off as a um, kind of a cheap imitation, which sucks. And I don't like saying that, especially because DC Animation has been so good lately with Batman versus, or uh, Justice League versus the Fatal Five, Death of Superman. You really need to take a look at those if you haven't watched them yet skip this if you're unless you're a huge batman hush fan and then even then because i'm a huge batman hush fan um it's it's not gonna do exactly what you want it to do uh next up uh speaking of the batman or the uh, the batman the uh dc animated uh film universe wonder woman bloodlines we got the first look at that film it looks interesting really does look interesting um it's going to be once again kind of retelling uh diana's origin but we're going to get cheetah it looks like we're going to get dr poison again so i'm not sure exactly what they're going for here um if it just ends up being kind of an animated rehash of all of the story beats from the wonder woman film uh the live action film that is i don't really see it doing very well but if it ends up being something wholly unique then i will be absolutely the first person to check it out uh next up we uh have some film casting news for coming to america 2 
Um, I know that sounds strange because we've never talked about coming to America at any point in this podcast, but I think it's important because um, it's a funny movie. It's really fun. Uh, this is one of Eddie Murphy's best films, and they're finally making a sequel to it. And James Earl Jones is is returning to play uh, Eddie Murphy's father in this film. He was played to perfection here in the uh, in the very first Coming to America, and it also added Wesley Snipes, who has been in the news lately for the uh, all the Blade stuff going on with Mahershala Ali. They seem to be on okay terms when it comes to this stuff. Uh, Wesley Snipes really was campaigning for a long time to have his Blade uh, put into the MCU retroactively, and when the casting came up for Mahershala Ali to be in the role, a lot of people were really interested to see what his take was, and it seems amicable for the most part. I mean, as amicable as uh, Wesley Snipes can get, but seems fine, but I think it's interesting that they're adding him into this film. Um, speaking of uh, big revivals of kind of older properties... Disney Plus. Disney Plus is uh, looking to reboot some famous Fox properties such as Home Alone and Aliens. Why? Why do we need that? Um, I don't really understand the reasoning behind it, especially because I don't think in a modern context Home Alone works with all of the uh, child-proofing and uh, interconnectivity and just technology that exists today. That movie, I'm not really sure, works, but whatever. Um, they seem to be really wanting to push some of this stuff to make the best use of their purchase of Fox, so we'll see how that goes. Uh, for DC film news... Uh, James Gunn officially said on Twitter that Batman will not be making any cameos in Suicide Squad. In the original Suicide Squad, uh, Ben Affleck's Batman made a few different appearances in the backstories of some of the main characters. And so, you know, reasonably, people were wondering if Batman would be making an appearance here, since it's kind of a soft reboot, kind of a sequel, but we're not really sure exactly what it is yet. But James Gunn basically said that um, Robert Pattinson will have just started uh, putting all that stuff together for his Batman by the time that this comes out. So there's really not a whole lot of room for crossover. So I'm fine with that. If James Gunn wants to focus on the squad, which he absolutely should, do that. And then finally in film news, um, something that I, I find really interesting, and that's why I held off for this to be the last piece of news for film, the Russo brothers were asked if any MCU property would bring them back into the fold to direct. Uh, the Russos famously said that after Endgame they will be stepping away from, uh, from the MCU, at least for a while, to focus on stuff that they want to do, which, totally understandable. And I think it's interesting that they've chosen to do that when a lot of people... Um, I mean, famously, in the uh, in Phase 1 into Phase 2, Joss Whedon was brought on to do um, the first Avengers film to cap off uh, Phase 1, and then basically ran the show for Phase 2, kind of helping Kevin Feige like, create the direction for it. So, I'm totally okay with that. That's, you know, they're going to do what they're going to do. But I was really intrigued by this because someone asked them what 
Marvel property they would be interested in if they did come back to the MCU. And they said that they would be very interested in a Wolverine film. Um, you all know my uh, my deep-seated uh, love for the character and that I would love to play that character in the MCU. So I'm in. I'm in for it, um, especially if they bring some of their kind of smaller sensibilities that they did for the Winter Soldier into a story like that for Wolverine. I would be just ecstatic to see something like that with uh, the Russo's name attached to it. So I will be keeping a close eye on this for sure. Jumping over to TV news, uh, Benioff and Weiss, two names that are probably some of the most polarizing in popular culture today. Um, former writers of Game of Thrones, they're basically the showrunners as well. Uh, they have signed an exclusive deal with Netflix to, pro to produce a few different uh, pieces of content for them. Um, it's fine. They're working on stuff. They're also tapped for the next uh, Star Wars trilogy, so I don't know if that's going to interfere with that at all, but we will see how that goes. Um, it has also been revealed that Supergirl will be crossing over with the Batwoman in her first season. I We kind of expected that this was going to happen, but it's cool to get that uh, confirmation. I liked their interactions in Elseworlds, and I'm sure there's going to be more in Crisis on Infinite Earths. Um, Jeff Loeb, who is running the show, or was running the show over at um, Marvel TV, has said that Ghost Rider and Hellstrom, who, which were announced for uh, Hulu, those two shows, are just the beginning of the Adventure into Fear line, which is basically, it seems like, is going to be kind of their version of um, Marvel Netflix, the Marvel Knights, but they're going to be dealing with more occult characters, which I'm totally down for. Really interesting. Um, I want to see the Midnight Suns. I'm going to say it. I'm really interested in that. Uh, they also, Jeff Loeb did say that more Marvel Knights may be on the horizon, teasing possibly Moon Knight. Moon Knight is the, I think, biggest street-level character that they haven't tried yet on screen. So I think he is more than ready and more than primed for this spot. Speaking of the Marvel Knights and the Marvel Netflix, um, we, we've spoken about before on how... Uh, Marvel and Netflix put up pretty much every single prop and costume known to man for the Marvel Netflix shows on auction, pretty much signaling the end of that universe once um, all the shows were canceled. And even though that's really sad, we do get a bit of a happy ending there because uh, Stephen DeKnight, who was the showrunner for the first season of Daredevil, bought the Daredevil suit worn by Charlie Cox as Matt Murdock, saying that, I think it was on Instagram, that this suit will be on display at The Night Productions, and that's wonderful. I love that. I think that's really, really great. And then finally, uh, for um, TV news, rumor has it that Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., which is heading into its final season, might have a big-time guest star making her appearance or her reappearance in the show and that is Haley Atwell playing Peggy Carter. Would love to see this even if it's just for kind of a cap off to uh, Agent Carter since we never got to see a third season to really wrap up her stuff and it would be really interesting if we're going off of the idea that 
if we do end up seeing her, this is a Peggy post Cap returning for that dance with her. So I would be down to see that. Um, on to comic book news, which we don't really have any. Uh, kind of a slow week for comic book news, so I'm hoping for some more stuff next week. And then finally, in miscellaneous news, uh, we've got two two things here. The big one, though, for me, is that um, there's been an announcement. There's been an announcement for a beloved TV show that's going to be making its return uh, in theaters for a, I, I believe, a 12-episode, three-night run, and that is Friends. I love Friends. Friends is probably one of my favorite shows, if not my favorite show of all time. It's their 25th anniversary as well this year, and um, recently over at uh, the Coffee Bean near my home. Uh, they've been doing kind of a partnership with friends, doing the uh, doing like promotional drinks and stuff, and I bought a giant mug. I just, I had to. I saw it. I had to have it. It says, How You Brewin' on the... <laughs> it's so dumb. Uh, How You Brewin' on the mug, and uh, it's basically just celebrating the 25th anniversary. So uh, Warner Brothers is putting on a uh, an event I don't remember the company they do it with, but it's the one that always does the, uh, like if there's going to be an animated film, they do an event for that, stuff like that. But it's going to be a three-night affair at select theaters with four episodes which are remastered, totally remastered, uh, four episodes per night. And you might just see me there. I might just go to this because I love Friends and seeing like a completely remastered collection of some of the best episodes in it in its run would be amazing. And finally, it was my birthday this week. Uh, it was my birthday on Monday, August 12th, and it was nice. It was, uh, it was kind of a quiet day, kind of to myself. I, uh, I spent it doing mostly nothing which was nice, so um, really enjoyed that. But it being my birthday really spurred me on to make uh, my birthday edition of the podcast about something that I am very, very passionate about, and that is, of course, Captain America. So now we move on to the main course, the entree of the episode, if you will, which is all about the MCU's interpretation of Captain America and why I think that it might just be the best Captain America we've ever had. I love that song so much. You have no idea. I'm not going to play the whole thing because that's it's like a three minute long thing, but okay, maybe just a little bit more. Yeah. 
how does that not make you want to just go out and punch a Nazi? I just, I love, I love the song so much. It's so good. It's so pure and just, just better than this world. You know what? It's my birthday. I'm going to just play the rest of it. If you want to skip ahead a minute and a half, go for it. But we are about to get star spangled up in here. I just, I really want to thank everyone for indulging me and letting me enjoy something that is so pure. Anyway, on with the show. Um, I wanted to talk this week about Avengers Endgame again. I know I said with the post game, this is going to be it for uh, Endgame and all that stuff, but it officially released on Blu-ray and 4K Ultra HD or whatever uh, other formats um, this past week on the uh, on the th- the 13th, which is when we're recording this. So um, I really just wanted to kind of talk about it and talk about something that's near and dear to my heart, which is Captain America. Captain America has been my favorite superhero from a very very early age. I remember at a uh, summer camp or uh, it was basically like a summer daycare kind of thing that I was at. I had one of those frisbees that had the little straps on the other side so that you could like hold on to it when you're running around because kids and uh, I took it as a Captain America shield and I started like throwing it at people it was bad but I have loved this character from a very early age and I can confidently say that I have possibly never been more in love with the character than I have across the MCU Um, this particular episode is going to be focused a lot on the uh, just kind of the journey that Captain America Steve Rogers goes on throughout the first three phases of the MCU, also known as the Infinity Saga. And it was kind of inspired by a YouTuber that I follow. That YouTuber is uh, Scott Nicewander on NerdSync. If you haven't checked out NerdSync on uh, YouTube, definitely do so. I can confidently say that without NerdSync, there would be no Geek Explained. Scott does amazing content on that channel and he has been putting out some of his best work in the past year so definitely check out some of his videos um the stuff focused on spider-man is some of my personal favorites but they're all very good uh one i want to say it was his latest uh video really focused on his personal uh kind of his personal trials and tribulations and how he related to the journey of Thor across Infinity War and Endgame, specifically focusing on his kind of redemption in Endgame. And it got me thinking, it got me really emotional. I watched this video that he made. I would recommend anyone who has any kind of uh, 
fandom or adoration for these characters to check out this video because I cried twice in this video for various reasons, but I definitely think if you are a fan of these characters, you should check this out. And it inspired me to kind of talk about why I love Steve Rogers so much, and specifically uh, why I love this iteration of Steve Rogers, because there are a lot of things across both the comics and the films that are very similar. Um, his costume, his name, his uh, just complete focus on what is right, even if it is not the popular or easy choice. But there are some things that I would say are quite different. Um, there are things that I think are unique to the Chris Evans version of Captain America, and there are things that I think that just translate better in a medium like this. But before we get to that, before we get to kind of my view and why I love this character so much, um, I want to give you a little bit of background on Steve Rogers, um, just so that I can kind of set the stage for what I'm going to talk about. Um, I'm going to be completely honest with you guys. I don't script these podcasts. I do basic notes. Sometimes they're a little over explaining in the notes and I end up just fumbling all over my words. But for the most part, I don't script uh, this podcast just because I like to kind of find my rhythm and find my way. So if I get rambling here, um, it is just because I love this character and I am going to be talking about something that I really care about. Uh, since it is uh, kind of the birthday edition of the podcast, I really wanted to focus on something that I really am passionate about. I'm passionate in general about comics, but Captain America has been something near and dear to my heart for a very long time, so I really wanted to just talk about this. So to set the stage, Steve Rogers, uh, before, we're talking about before uh, the serum, we're talking about in 1942, Steve Rogers was a scrawny guy who was, I'm not sure if they officially said it in, uh, in the film, but suffering from polio. Uh, polio was a very, very debilitating disease for a very long time, and fortunately Steve Rogers was a, I guess, a victim of this disease, and it caused him to be completely just scrawny and small and super underweight, emaciated at times, and he palled around always with his buddy James Buchanan Barnes, and they kind of looked out for each other, bugging more than Steve. Um, but what really drew me to this version of the character is his kind of black and white stance. There is right and there is wrong. Um, at least at the very beginning, we're talking about Captain America, the first Avenger. He was very sure about himself and where he was in the world and how the world was, because at that time it was just in my point of view, much simpler than it is today. There were good guys. There were bad guys. There were the allies. There was the Axis. And... This really showed in his worldview. It showed in his uh, willingness to throw himself on a grenade for other people without giving it a second thought. Uh, the grenade scene in the first Avenger is one of my favorite scenes because if you want to look at something that is just true and blue Steve Rogers, that's it. He didn't have the super soldier serum at this point. He was still scrawny Steve Rogers, and he was willing to sacrifice himself to jump on what ended up being a dummy grenade to save everyone else. And that is what, that quality about him is what caught the eye of Peggy Carter. Um, 
the two of them really didn't get a whole lot of time together because while uh Peggy was set to be in, at least from what we saw, more of an administrative position, even though she is incredibly capable. Uh, Cap was on the front lines. Cap was going all over uh, Europe and just fighting with the Allies along with his Howling Commandos. When he got the serum, when he was given the serum and he officially became Captain America, this didn't change him. And that really, I think, traces all the way back to a conversation that he has with uh, Abraham Erskine. Basically, just by the way, completely played to perfection by Stanley Tucci. Um, the two of them have a conversation the night before the procedure where uh, Erskine tells him, no matter what happens tomorrow, I don't want you to lose sight of the fact that you are a good person. And I want you to carry that with you, regardless of what happens. No matter how strong you get, don't ever stop being a good person. And when Erskine is killed following the uh, success of the experiment, he taps Steve on the chest as he as he dies to remind him that inside he's good that's the whole crux of the super soldier serum in the first avenger where erskine says what's bad becomes worse what's good becomes greater and that is exemplified in steve's clashes with the red skull who used a more experimental version of the super soldier serum and it turned him from bad to worse turning him from johann schmidt into the red skull and you see a really interesting pattern across this film across really all of their interactions as well as steve's interactions with everyone else and that's the idea of tradition versus modernity um Red Skull is constantly looking towards the future when it comes to this. He is looking at ways he can use the Tesseract to win the war, to fuel the future. He even says during his final confrontation with Captain America, he says, I have seen the future. There are no flags. And while this would be a cryptic uh, foreshadowing for Steve in his nomad identity years and years later, um, Steve tries to hold on to this idea of tradition. Steve tries to hold on to this idea of good versus evil, of right versus wrong, and that's ultimately what puts him in contrast with the Red Skull. Um, the Red Skull has made it very clear in this film that he doesn't view... Uh, I guess the Nazi uh, dictatorship in the same way that Hitler does. Um, he views it as a way to open up the future, to rule that future, of course, but to access something that is far and ahead of his time. While Steve is focused on not really using any kind of technological advances, he's got a shield. He barely uses a gun. Um, Steve is also focused on the idea of this whole battle between right and wrong, good and evil, acts versus allies, as um, human beings versus bullies. He doesn't say immediately when Erskine asks him, do you want to kill Nazis? He doesn't immediately go, yes, I want to kill Nazis for the US of A. He says, I don't like bullies, and I don't care where they're from. And this is shown earlier on in the film when he uh, confronts this guy who is just being an awful heckler in this movie theater, basically telling him to shut up because they're trying to, um, these 
basically in front of their film they're getting these uh, wartime reels and uh, this guy is just being a total dickwad and really upsetting people who are visibly affected by the um by the news of the war and steve even though he is just four foot nothing scrawny as hell goes out in the back alley to fight this guy because that's what's right in his mind that's what's good and this guy is being a bully so that bully needs to be taught a lesson and even though he's not really taught the lesson by steve um this really plays into this idea of Steve Rogers never giving up, even if it's not the easy route. And it births the iconic, I can do this all day line. And Steve is just seeming, even in, even in his own time, even in the 40s, he seems to be a man out of time. Because he's looking back at this black and white view of the world where everything used to be really easy and the easy choice is to be good or to be evil um he clashes multiple times with the um i can't remember the name of the uh tommy lee jones character but he clashes with tommy lee jones on more than one occasion because um he just sees things as very uh clear and crystal it's just people need help we need to go help them and as we know, in war, it's not always that simple. And that's, again, what really draws him to Peggy Carter, who is a strong, independent woman who don't need no man. And she really sees something special in him, even before the serum. But once he does get the serum, he's able to really make a difference in the way that he always wanted to. Unfortunately, the war kind of changes him. Um, it focuses him on being the best that he can be. It focuses on him being this sentinel of liberty and leaving kind of the life of an ordinary person that Steve Rogers had behind. And ultimately, when he is separated from Peggy, getting, getting to share one last kiss with her before jumping on this experimental plane, he is unable to return to that kind of life because after a uh, confrontation with the red skull which sees him get just blasted away by the tesseract um he's forced to take the plane and just put it in the water aka the arctic and unfortunately the next time that steve wakes up it's almost 70 years later um and this really is what drew me to the character um, immediately in the ending of the first Avenger, Steve Rogers just runs out of this shield facility that he's woken up in and right into Times Square. A completely un just recognizable, unrecognizable Times Square. He's surrounded by lights and sounds and technology that he's never seen before. And when Nick Fury confronts him, he tells him he's been asleep for a very long time. And he asks him if he's okay. And you see this look that Steve gives, just looking away, trying to compose himself. And he just says, yeah, I just, I had a date. And that line always gets a tear from me. It really does. I don't care how many times I've seen this film. I don't care how corny it is. I don't care how cheesy it is. I just roll that one Denzel Washington tear every single time he says that line. Because this is something that he has been searching for. You see in the first Avenger that he has been completely unsuccessful in the realm of love. And as time goes on 
through this war, him and Peggy become very close. We aren't shown every single interaction they have because it's hard to cover, you know, four years of wartime in a single film. But you do get the idea that they have grown closer and closer throughout this experience. And that last conversation they have before he goes in the ice where, you know, she's talking about meeting him at the at the uh, the Stork Club next Friday and um, he says that he doesn't know how to dance and that she's going to teach him how and then it just cuts off when he goes in the ice and crashes it's it's heartbreaking it really is but no more heartbreaking than when Steve has to deal with the modern world and that brings us to Steve Rogers the hero Captain America is pretty much thrown in straight into the modern MCU almost immediately after being thought out. Um, you see that he has some minor form of PTSD where he is constantly reliving the horrors of World War II, and he is hoping that he can get some of this off of his mind when Nick Fury comes to him with a mission. And that mission is, of course, the start of the Avengers coming together. And one of the things that I will never forgive from the Avengers, I love this film. It is one of the most rewatchable films in the entire MCU, the original Avengers in 2012, also known as Avengers Assemble Overseas, um, is they took a scene that really explained everything that I really... Um, that I just admire and something that I really connect with Steve Rogers on a on a personal level when they cut out a scene of him walking through modern day New York uh, we do get some of this in the Winter Soldier and we'll talk about that in a second but um, there's a scene if you haven't seen this go on YouTube check it out where it's Steve just walking through modern day New York it's just a day in the life thing um, and you see him just reacting to modern day stuff, modern day cars, modern day um, celebrities, modern day uh, advancements in technology. You see him sitting at a, uh, at a cafe near Times Square and he's drawing. That's one thing that I wish they had brought forward more after uh, the first Avenger is his art ability because he was a great artist in the comics and in the first Avenger. And you, you see him uh, drawing a sketch of him as a dancing monkey, really just kind of venting on how he felt at the time doing USO shows. But you see him sketching and you see how disconnected he is from everything. And this really feeds into the idea of nostalgia. Uh, nostalgia is a huge, uh, is a really huge part of Steve Rogers' character in the MCU. And at the risk of it sounding incredibly cliche, nostalgia, the definition of nostalgia, is a sentimental longing or wistful affection for the past, typically for a period or place with happy personal associations or something done or presented in order to evoke feelings of nostalgia. Now, Steve Rogers has a really touchy relationship, a really complicated relationship with nostalgia. Because as you heard in the definition, it is typically for a period or place with happy personal associations. But for Steve, who was always the good soldier, the one who was trying so hard to join the military to fight for his country, his period or place with happy personal associations was wartime and so you see 
his inability to come to grips with the fact that the world changed. Um, and you see this right in the uh, conversation that he has with Nick Fury when he says, you know, they said we won the war, they don't say what we lost. And to, and to Steve, what they lost is this sense of self, this sense of comfortability, and you see him react to the world knowing that the world is much more gray than he left it. And when he is confronted with the idea of being Captain America again, he, he initially doesn't want it. When Coulson tells him, he's like, you know, I came up with a whole new costume for you. We got the shield. Everything's going to be great. Uh, Steve seems really apathetic to this. And he kind of says, you know, aren't the Stars and Stripes a little old-fashioned? Just not really expecting to be thrown back into this Captain America persona. He's totally fine being Captain Steve Rogers helping out the world. But he doesn't know if Captain America is too... I guess, cheesy for this time. But Coulson reassures him, saying, you know, everything that's going on, we might just need a little old-fashioned. And when he steps out in that Captain America suit, which is criminally underrated, um, you see him start to come to grips with that idea. And the more that he wears the suit throughout the, throughout the film, the more comfortable he feels in it. When he confronts Loki in... I can't remember. It's some European town. I'm sorry. But when he first confronts Loki, he he seems awkward. He's saying lines that seem really cheesy. Like, uh, the last time that I saw someone standing over this many people in Germany, you know, we had a disagreement. And it's like, he's trying to put on this, what he thinks people want for him. What he thinks people want from him in this idea that he's trying to be Captain America instead of Captain America Steve Rogers. And you see throughout this film this idea that he isn't sure about stepping back into a leadership role. He isn't sure about stepping into something that he doesn't really understand. You see on the S.H.I.E.L.D. action set piece that when uh, Tony tries to get him to turn the, uh, I guess, the... What's it called? The rotor blades back on. He's like, I don't know what I'm looking at. Like, he doesn't know exactly what to do, and he hasn't really acclimated to this modern setting yet. And so when, at the end of the film, everyone is like, hooray, we, you know, we won and everything. Everyone's kind of partnering up. You see everyone kind of leaving together. You see Thor leaving with Loki. You see Banner leaving with um, Tony. You see Natasha and... Clint leaving together and then you see Steve just kind of riding off into the distance he's unsure about his future he doesn't know where he fits in the world now but you see with this hopeful grin on his face that he's looking forward to finding out which brings us to the Winter Soldier in my view the best Captain America film and up until recently, the greatest MCU film they've ever made. Now, I can fight people on that all day, and I have, and I will continue to, but this film, for me, really dives into what makes Captain America great. Um, Captain America is, of course, fighting for what's right. Of course, serving his country. Of course, being a badass with a shield while he does it. But Captain America is also... Um, and I feel strange using this word, um, depressed. And you see this throughout the film. 
you see his inability to uh, make interpersonal connections. Nat, throughout the entire film, is trying to get him to, I guess, hook up with people that they know. And all the time he's just like, no, no, I'm busy, I'm busy, I'm doing missions, I'm not ready for that. Um, proving one of the greatest buddy cop uh, combinations in the entire MCU. Take that, Thor and Hulk. But it is Captain America and the Black Widow, hands down, bar none. But you see him in this weird place. Uh, once he completes his initial mission on um, on the, the boat, he kind of leaves for a little bit. He wants to clear his head after he's had this really tumultuous conversation with uh, Nick Fury about security versus safety or security versus freedom. And you see the scene that I wish they had kept in uh, in the Avengers, where you see him interacting with day-to-day life. It's my favorite scene. Uh, back when we were doing, I think it was the Avengers pregame, I participated in the One Marvelous Scene thing that was kind of going on over on YouTube, except in podcast form, obviously. Um, and I chose this to be my scene. This is... Uh, Captain America's walkabout, Steve Rogers dealing with the modern world. And what he does with the modern world, um, he doesn't go to a modern place, he doesn't go to, you know, a monster truck rally, he doesn't go to a concert, he doesn't go, you know, to a theme park, he goes to the Smithsonian. Because he himself feels like a relic. And not only that, he goes to the Captain America exhibit because it's what he finds comfortable. It's where he feels comfortable. Because, as we know, with nostalgia, a place with happy personal associations. And he never felt like he had more of a direction than he did when he was in wartime. And you see him looking through this exhibit, watching as the uh, display of Bucky talks about how he's the only Howling Commando to give his life in the service. Um... And you see how sad he is. You see how much he longs for that time, for the life that he was denied. And then, and then it gets worse because he goes to visit Peggy Carter. One of the big long-standing questions coming out of uh, not only the first Avenger, but the Avengers Assemble film was what happened to Peggy? Where is she now? Is she still alive? And we find out that she is alive. Uh, and she lived a life. She lived a very long life into modern day, and she is currently in a uh, in a hospice. And you see her having a conversation with Steve, where he admits to her without explicit saying basically everything without explicitly saying the word that he is depressed, that he w- that he thought he could throw himself back into the world, but everything seems different, and he doesn't know where he fits in this morally gray world when he still sees things as black and white. And when he has the conversation with Peggy, there's a moment where Peggy tells him, I, the only regret that I have in my life is that you never got to live yours. You never got to live the life that you were meant to have. And during this conversation, um, we find out that Peggy has some form of either Alzheimer's or dementia. 
and in her old age she um she loses track of the conversation she loses sight of the conversation and she, when she looks back at steve it's like she's seeing him for the first time since 1945 oh and um god it just, I cry at this scene every time. I don't care how many times I've seen The Winter Soldier, I cry at the scene every single time. And um, she reacts to him like she's seeing him for the first time. And you see how much this affects Steve. You see him on the brink of tears trying to normalize the conversation and trying to be charming steve rogers captain america again but he is just bubbling under the surface just lost at the idea of not having anything left from his time peggy's it peggy's all he has left and you see him kind of react to that in his friendship with Sam Wilson, who makes an appearance at the very beginning of the film when the uh, famous on your left scene happens. And uh, the two of them are very similar. Sam having just recently come back from uh, two tours overseas and him dealing with some form of PTSD at the, at the, um, or from losing his partner. And it's really interesting i think because the two of them are very similar and that's why they gravitate towards each other but they're also very different because sam has found a way to talk to people sam has found a way to acclimate himself back to day-to-day -day life in helping other vets get over their trauma and steve you know listens in on a meeting but doesn't go in and when uh, Sam invites him back, he says, no, no, I'm busy. Again, feeding towards this idea that Steve would rather kind of retract from the world than figure out how to move past his depression and his trauma. And so we really touch on this idea that Steve has an, an inability to let go. And that is no more uh, explicitly shown than in his relationship with Bucky Barnes, who makes his return here as the Winter Soldier. Uh, the moment that he clashes with the Winter Soldier, he knows something's different. But he is going at him as he would with anyone else in that situation, uh, in a combat situation, going against each other, fighting each other uh, beat for beat. Their fight on the highway is one of my favorite one-on-one -on -one uh, confrontations because it is so well choreographed that you really feel how close each of them are to basically killing each other and the moment that steve realizes that the winter soldier is bucky he is unable to you know throw hands with him and you see this throughout the rest of the film he is trying to save bucky he's trying to rid him of his programming and especially we see this in the final confrontation on board the final helicarrier when steve is not willing to basically battle Winter Soldier on his level, where Winter Soldier is ready and prepared and able to kill Steve Rogers. And finally, we get that moment where Winter Soldier is just beating the holy hell out of him as the helicarrier is crashing around them. And he says, you know, you're my mission. And Steve says, then go ahead and finish it because I'm with you to the end of the line. And this is a callback to a conversation they had after the funeral of Steve's mom, where Bucky told him, you know, I know you, you want to be alone. I know you don't need friends. And you see in this scene 
how to correctly be an ally for someone who is suffering through depression, someone who is going through these moments of, no, I would rather be alone than have people feel sorry for me. And Bucky pulls him close and he says, I'm with you to the end of the line, pal. Doesn't matter if you're going to be depressed, I'm going to be there for you and we are going to get through this together. And when Steve is able to reiterate that statement to the Winter Soldier, that's when Bucky breaks through. That's when Bucky realizes that Steve is doing exactly for him what Bucky did for him, or what Bucky did for Steve. And it's shown that Bucky has shown through the Winter Soldier programming because he rescues Steve at the end of the film and basically allows him to live instead of drowning. Uh, following this, Steve goes on a worldwide search for Bucky, and you see a little bit of a uh, a little bit of a detour when the events of Age of Ultron happen, and it is first implied that Steve is obsessed with endless wartime and nostalgia. Uh, there's a moment when Ultron tells him, you know, Captain America, God's righteous man. And he makes fun of him for thinking that he could live without war. And we see when Scarlet Witch is doing her mental mind games with everyone, when it shows everyone's worst nightmares, you see that Steve's is going home. You see that Steve's is living the life that he never knew. You see that Steve's nightmare is living a normal life. Because at this point in his time, after the war, after the slumber, after, you know, the events of New York, after everything that's happened to him, realizing that Bucky's alive, he doesn't know how to go back to a normal life. He doesn't know how to go back, and he is afraid of being useless, because he fighting is all he knows at this point. Fighting is all that he's comfortable with knowing. And when he is given that idea it bothers him and you can see how much it bothers him when they go to the barton farm and everyone you know heads into the the house initially and steve stops at the door and he hears peggy's voice echo you know we can go home and you realize that there is no home for steve rogers at least in his mind because home means stability Home means normalcy. Home means safety. And Steve Rogers doesn't know if he's able to exist in a world without war. And he doesn't know where he fits because in his mind, he is a soldier. He is a tool for others to use in combat. And in the same way that in the first Avenger, he saw himself as, I don't care how long it's going to take. I don't care how you know, broken my body is, I'm going to serve my country, uh, I don't want a normal life, Steve now sees himself as unable to have a normal life. And it's incredibly sad. It's incredibly sad because he brings the weight of the world on his shoulders, knowing that it doesn't have to be that way, that there is a possibility for him to be normal. So, following the events of Age of Ultron, knowing how everything has affected him leading to this point, he decides to take a break from searching for Bucky, and he decides to be a leader again. He decides to lead the new Avengers, comprising of Falcon, Vision, Scarlet Witch, War Machine, and uh, Natasha. And 
this group, this kind of hodgepodge uh, second class of, of the Avengers, is not able to really reach their full potential because of the events of Lagos. Uh, this is where Crossbones is trying to steal this chemical weapon, and during the ensuing melee, uh, Scarlet Witch unfortunately is part of the deaths of multiple people. People die because Crossbones was um, trying to essentially be a suicide bomber. Scarlet Witch tried to get him away from everyone and ended up throwing him right into the side of a building, which killed at least dozens of people. And it's during this that the idea of Bucky is revisited because following this, the Sokovia Accords happen. Um, Steve doesn't know if he's going to sign or anything, and he gets the news that Peggy has passed. Peggy Carter officially has passed, and it's, um, it's tough for him because Peggy, in his mind, was the last shreds of what he had of his previous life. It was the last thing that he had that he could be nostalgic about. And with her gone, all he has left, the smallest amount that he has left of the life that he left behind, the life that he doesn't think he deserves anymore, is Bucky. And when Bucky is implicated in the bombings at the UN, he makes it his mission to track him down because he knows he's not capable of it. And we see this division between him, Tony, and the other Avengers. And we kind of got this idea between different ideologies between uh, him and Tony throughout all of the MCU films, starting in the Avengers. Uh, there's a moment where, uh, at the end of Age of Ultron, him and Tony are talking, and Tony is essentially retiring. And he's basically saying, like, you know, family, stability, you'll get there one day. And Steve admits to him that he doesn't know if he's the same person who wanted family and stability, and he doesn't know where he fits in this world. And Tony is the first person, really, I think the first person in the modern day to notice that something's wrong with him, which is so incredible, and it really speaks to the strength of their friendship, even though all of the bad stuff happens between them. And Tony is the first one to ask if he's okay. And it, I'm going to be completely honest with you guys. I go through um, bouts of depression. I go through moments where I just, oh, I don't think I'm good enough. I think I'm worthless. I think the things that I'm pursuing are unattainable to me. I don't know where I am. I don't know what I'm doing. I feel like an outsider. And there are moments where I really wish that someone would ask if I was okay. And you see, um, oh, you see this moment when Tony asks if he's okay. Um, Steve isn't ready to accept the idea that he is depressed. And he basically, you know, gives a shrug and he says, I'm home. And one thing that I think is really interesting about this line is that Joss Whedon has said, uh, following the uh, release of Age of Ultron, that he wishes in the edit he had gone with a different take because apparently there was a take where Steve 
just says that line, I'm home, with such a forlorn expression that he, this is all he has. This is literally all he has. And I wish that they had gone that route with him because uh, I think it would have gone a long way to show us or give us more of a context for why Steve makes the choices that he does in Civil War. Which brings us to the confrontation between Captain America and Iron Man on not only their differing ideologies, but also, once again, coming right back around to it, tradition versus modernity. And when it comes right down to it, that's really what it's kind of been about between the two of them. Tony Stark, at his core, is a futurist. He's always looking forward. While Steve Rogers is always longing for the past. He's always looking back. And to see the two of them finally find something to fundamentally disagree on. We've seen them disagree on things before. Uh, we saw even in Age of Ultron, a little mini teaser of a possible civil war. But... This is the first time that they really truly disagree on something and they're unwilling to see the other's uh, perspective when it comes to that. And this really pushes the idea of Steve and his loneliness starting to poke out even more. Because we've seen throughout his time in the modern day that he is, like we said, suffering from depression and loneliness. But at the same time, he's also really focused on the ideas of guilt and responsibility. Now, I wanted to talk about guilt and responsibility when it comes to Steve because that is something that's been intrinsically part of his character for, God, years, decades even. And it really shines in Civil War and later on in uh, Infinity War and Endgame as well. But in Civil War, it's this idea of him trying to rescue Bucky, just how it's been since uh, since Winter Soldier. And when he is looking for Bucky, when he finds him in that apartment, he is still looking for his friend. He's not trying to take him in. He's not trying to uh, find justice. He's trying to save his friend. And he believes in his heart that this is his responsibility, that Bucky, regardless of what he's done, regardless of who's looking for him, regardless of what else is going on in the world, it's his responsibility, and if he isn't able to save Bucky, then he will have failed and he will have lost the last piece of uh, his former life. And so he tries to hold on to it with such a death grip that he pretty much alienates everyone else in his, in his team. Um, all of them, when it comes to them kind of coming together, uh, the airport battle, which is still one of the greatest uh, superhero throwdowns in uh, film history until it was unseated by Endgame. But it's just, you see how much he is willing to lose, how much he is willing to give up in the pursuit of saving his best friend. And... This is an idea that's been with the character even in the comics for years and years and years. It's this idea that he is somehow responsible for everyone. He is somehow responsible for all the good and the bad that happens. And this is something that I've always kind of uh, related to with the character. It's this weird thing that he has that I also have had for a very long time where basically you feel this weird sense of responsibility for other people's actions. 
It's it doesn't make any sense, but anytime something goes wrong, somehow your brain is wired to make you think that you are somehow responsible for that thing going wrong. That you have um, basically given yourself more responsibility than you really ever just physically could have. And that's something that's always been intrinsic with Captain America's character. Uh, we saw this in the original Civil War in the comics where he basically is taking the failures of the world and taking those on his shoulders when it's something that he just couldn't help. You can't help other people and what they decide and how they act. You can't change that. You can't take responsibility for that. But Cap does he is willing to throw everything away because he thinks that bucky is his responsibility and anytime something bad happens he takes responsibility for that the airport scene when everyone realizes that only cap and bucky are going to get out of there if they want to continue this mission to fight the hydra super soldiers um you see how much that weighs on cap and how badly that affects him as they go but he knows that they're on a mission and they have to finish this mission and when it comes down to him and bucky getting to the uh getting to the moscow base tony shows up having finally kind of been turned over to what is going on and the three of them are witness to zemo showing the footage of bucky killing his parents it's um man it's heartbreaking it is still watching that back it is still incredibly heartbreaking that final action piece where it's cap and bucky defending themselves against iron man and i get where tony's coming from i absolutely do he killed whether he was under the control of hydra or not bucky killed his mom and i mean both of his parents but for tony more importantly his mom and it's it's hard that's a really morally gray area when you take into account that kind of thing, I don't know how I would react in that situation, but it's um, it's heartbreaking. The final sequence here is watching it back is just some of the saddest that you can get when it comes to the MCU, because these are two friends speaking specifically about Tony and Steve and their inability to see past their perspectives to allow themselves to find some common ground and. At the end of the sequence, when Cap essentially defeats Tony, Tony is shouting at him, you know, you don't deserve that shield, my father made that shield. Steve drops it and gives it to him. He's like, fine, if this is what's going to make you happy, if this is what's going to, you know, win the moral battle, I guess, um, here. And he leaves, but no one won from this situation. Cap may have won the physical fight, but in the grand scheme of the civil war that we're talking about, nobody won this. Everyone lost. And this is carried over into Infinity War, which takes place years later. And at this point, Steve, Natasha, Sam, and um, Wanda have been on the run. Uh, Bucky has been kept safe in Wakanda. He was frozen initially so that Shuri could figure out his programming. They solved it. They purged him of it. And now he's living as a happy little goat farmer, and that's all he ever wanted. So Steve, however, is roaming the Earth. They're basically doing Black Ops missions, like staying under the radar. And when he steps out on the train tracks in Infinity War, it's incredibly cathartic seeing him again but 
You also see how tired he looks. You see a weathered man who has lost faith in the institutions that basically created him. And regardless of who was in the right or not, Steve's inability to let go of his past, let go of Bucky, ultimately resulted in him being shunned and him being completely ostracized from that community. And so when he returns with Vision and Wanda and Sam and Natasha to the Avengers compound, he is a changed man. You can see that he has doubled down on his beliefs, and when he says to uh, General Ross, you know, um, I'm not asking for, for forgiveness, and I'm long past asking for permission, uh, you can see that he has changed. You can see that he has basically drawn a line in the sand. His inability to cope with the changing world around him has forced him to retreat inward and double down on what he believes in and what is his at his core. Whether that's healthy or not, that's up for debate. What's not up for debate, however, is this continuing idea of guilt and responsibility. Because when they are talking about how to uh, stop Thanos from getting Vision's Mind Stone, uh, Vision is immediately like, dudes, this is... We have to destroy the stone. I don't care about me. This, we're talking about the entire universe here. And Steve says we don't trade lives. And Vision just claps back at him with, dude, you did that. Like, when in the 40s, you did that. You sacrificed yourself for the lives of millions. How is this any different? And Cap doesn't have a retort for this. And I love this moment because it really, once again, shows that Steve doesn't view other people in the same way that he views himself. He views himself and has ever since, you know, going back all the way to the first Avenger, he views himself as a tool that is expendable. He doesn't view other people that way. And no matter what, he is willing to throw everything away to protect the people that he cares about. And it's... Man, it, it, like it's there's a lot to unpack there just because it's this idea that Steve is willing to sacrifice everything for other people, but he's not willing to sacrifice other people for that same cause. If this was an idea of like, okay, Steve, you have the Mind Stone, and uh, the only way that we could destroy it is by destroying you, immediately you know Steve Rogers would be like, okay, let's do it. Let's get rid of this thing. And it's just... It's what... Honestly, if we're talking about, you know, hypotheticals and, you know, what would have happened if this happened, what would have happened if this happened, um, if Steve didn't have that complex about it, along with Wanda as well, uh, not wanting to kill Vision, I don't think the events of Infinity War would have taken place. If they had all decided, okay, we're going to destroy the stone, I'm sorry Vision, we have to do this, Vision of course being like, yeah, gung-ho let's do this um they could have avoided a lot and that's ultimately why thanos won in infinity war because he was willing to do what the heroes weren't and ultimately that is what causes the uh snap to happen and that is what allows thanos to win so following this he and the other avengers once tony gets back once they link up with captain marvel go off to um the garden wherever that is and uh, they go after Thanos. Steve is focused. Steve is... We don't normally see him as focused as he is 
in uh, Infinity War and Endgame. He is past this idea of him worrying about himself in this particular instance. He is just worried about, we need to save everybody. And you even see that, you know, he's moved past this whole idea of language when he's like, let's go get the son of a bitch. Like, he is so angry and so fraught with despair at the idea of they lost, and so is Thor, um, that they are throwing caution to the wind to go after him. And so when they ultimately find out that Thanos used the stones to destroy the stones, um, they realize now that they've completely lost. There's no going back from this. And then we cut to five years later. And a lot of people, when they first watched Endgame and on repeat viewings, have said that the first hour is slow. That the first hour is unnecessary. I could not disagree with you folks more. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, all the character work that is done in here is essential. Essential for what follows in the rest of that film. And especially when you look at Steve Rogers, you see that he has, I, I would say in my headcanon, taken over Sam Wilson's um, uh, group therapy and has taken this idea from his best friend that I'm going to try to help other people. But you even see, you even see in this group therapy session um, talking to other people that he is not let go and, you know, big part of the marketing for this film was, you know, like, some people move on, but not us. Not us. And you see in this group therapy session that he's basically trying to tell them, like, you gotta move on or else you're stuck in the past. Like me. And he even mentions, he's like, you know, I went to the ice at 45 right after I met the love of my life. And you see how much it hurts him to say that. Because he is still suffering from what the kids today call FOMO. Fear of missing out, ladies and gentlemen. We are learning uh, hip-hop slang. We are learning common day uh, <laughs> urban dictionary stuff. Bitch didn't think we were going to go here, but we did. Um, and you see that this idea, this nostalgia, this loneliness, this depression is still there. After the focus that he was under post-Civil War, he has retracted. This past five years has been nothing but, I assume, peacetime. I really want stories set within this five years because I think that's an incredibly rich uh, source of material that I hope they go back to someday. But in those five years, you can see that he's, you know, he's tried to settle into this normal life that everyone, you know, has been talking about. But you still see that he's alone. Even if not physically, he still feels alone. Because he is basically, and I hate saying this, but he's basically lying to the rest of his group that, hey, you gotta move on, or else Thanos should have kill, killed all of us. And it's really um, it's really interesting when he has the scene later on with uh, Natasha, where she you know, basically tells him, like, this is the only family, family I've ever had. And that does feed into later on after her death, but... Steve admits to her in this way that he wasn't able to admit to the other people in his group that, you know, he is unable to move on. He is unable to let himself go and be that person because he is stuck with this idea, this idea of being afraid of the possibility of 
a land without endless wartime, of his life without endless wartime. And you see across this film, across Endgame, when he is just driven by this mission, we're going to go back, we're going to fix everything, we're going to get the stones, um, you see he is mostly incredibly focused. And we have not seen him as focused or at the height of his abilities ever before this. Uh, we see that he has grown as a character when they go back to uh, 2012 and he ends up doing the famous uh, Hail Hydra line in the elevator. I will say, I will say, my first viewing, I was really hoping they were going to do a repeat of that, but just kind of like elevate it. But I was so happy with this idea that Steve has learned to work smarter, not harder. And you see across these films the evolution of Steve Rogers as a character. Because Winter Soldier Steve Rogers, and even uh, Age of Ultron Steve Rogers, would have gone in there, beat the crap out of everybody, and taken the scepter, but probably would have lost precious time. This Steve Rogers, who has lived through Civil War, who has lived through Infinity War, who has lived through the past five years, knows now that the mission is more important than himself. Which brings us to immediately following Retrieving the Scepter, Captain America versus Captain America. Now, I could spend probably two more hours just talking about this scene. I really could. I'm not going to, but I really could. I'm going to give you the Cliff Notes version of that two-hour-long Captain America vs. Captain America podcast, basically saying that this, um, this confrontation is Steve directly looking at who he is. Not just physically, but also seeing the person that he has been since he came out of the ice. Because remember, in the first Avengers film, he was basically, I would say, not even six months out of the ice before he was thrown into something like this. And you see how different he is from the Steve Rogers he used to be. You know, with the whole, I can do this all day. He's like, yeah, I know, I know. He's moved on from that line. Um... But he's also looking at someone who is still haunted and obsessed with their past. And the idea of, for lack of better terms, for, haunted by his FOMO. And you really get to see him use that and realize how much of a crutch that has been for him when they go tumbling off of the, uh, the platform and Steve's compass falls out with the picture of Peggy in it. Uh, 2012 Cap is like, where did you get this? He's immediately like distracted by this and Steve is able to uh, continue the fight. And then when uh, 2012 Cap captures Steve and the, uh, the sleeper, which I'm going to say, I'm going to be honest, I have an issue with because 2012 Cap is nowhere near the, the kind of physical combatant that um, even Winter Soldier Cap was, so I was a little I was a little taken aback by the fact that he was able to outmatch him. Maybe he's tired. Who knows? But um, Steve is able to escape by using the thing that has been his weakness up until this point, which is Bucky and his past and his idea of his former life. So when he tells him Bucky's alive, 2012 Steve like let's go. Cap's able to take him out. And even though the immediate preceding, or the, uh, not the preceding, the immediate following moment from this is is a comedic beat, you know, the whole, that is America's ass kind of thing, um, you get to see him really take a look at his former self. And you get to see, I think, the seeds being planted of 
looking at someone who got who missed out looking at someone who missed out on everything and when ultimately they fail in getting the tesseract and him and tony have to go back even further to the 1970s he is still focused on his mission but he's still going back to his past again and all of the times that he's been wanting to go to his past, he is getting to actually see what that feels like to go into a time that passed him by. And he is laser-focused still, even though he's surrounded by this nostalgia. He's laser-focused on getting the pin particles, which he does, and having to avoid the MPs. He escapes into an office. And when he realizes whose office it is, you really see that's the change. That's the moment. Because this whole time, this whole time, since he got out of the ice, um, up until this point, he has been looking at the past, his former life, everything that preceded him. He has been looking at it through basically through the lens, through the lens of a camera, looking at something that has passed him by, something that he can only view from a distance. But being in that office, surrounded by Peggy's stuff, including a picture of pre-Serum Steve, which has always been something I love about that relationship, he sees Peggy. He sees Peggy, and this is different from seeing, you know, kind of old senile Peggy who's you know lived her entire life without him or with him depending on how you uh, how you view the uh, directors versus the writers argument he sees Peggy as she was as he remembered her and this is the moment this is the moment that things change for him when he sees physically right in front of him separated by just a couple inches of glass what he lost and what he possibly could have again. So everything happens. He goes back. They're able to snap everyone back. And then Thanos shows up. 2014 Thanos. And he is the most OP villain that they have ever had. And it's wonderful. Because he presents a unilateral threat that no single Avenger can defeat. That is the entire idea of the Avengers. The old school uh, slogan was, and there came a day unlike any other, where Earth's mightiest heroes banded together to solve the problems that no single hero could solve alone. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. But the entire idea behind the Avengers is essentially what Thanos represents. And we get to see Tony, Steve, and Thor standing together once again, for the first time, for the first time, all three of them standing together since Age of Ultron. And what I love about this is the three of them standing together, Tony and Steve. Thor has is one of the big three, but he's kind of, he's been on his own hero's journey. But Steve and Tony don't really get a chance to resolve everything that is going on between them uh specifically going back to the beginning of the film which didn't think i was going to talk about it but here it is um the incredible scene after tony's rescued where tony lashes out at steve 
he says, you know, I wanted to build a pseudo armor around the world, regardless of if it, you know, just regardless of if it affected people's personal liberties or whatever. And I said we'd lose. You said we'd do that too. And then we lost and you weren't there. And Robert Downey Jr. does incredible in this scene. And he really calls Steve out rightfully. Rightfully. And I have been a defender of Steve's actions in Civil War since that film came out in 2016. But... Steve is at fault here. Steve was intrinsically part of the separation of the Avengers. He is what caused the rift to happen. And he's finally being lashed out at for it. Um, Tony, the moment that he says, uh, no trust, liar. And he like, oh, you can see in Steve's face that he knows. He knows. He knows that his selfishness and his inability to let go and his trauma and his depression caused him to make the wrong decision. And whether or not you feel that that removes agency from him, that's up to you. But that is so part of his character that he made the choice and it cost them. Now, in this moment, when they are all standing together, they are finally united once again. Earth's Mightiest Heroes. And during this confrontation, Steve picks up Mjolnir. Now, for my headcanon, the headcanon that I accept, Steve became worthy over the course of these films. Steve was not always intrinsically worthy. Steve was not always able to lift Mjolnir. We see this in Age of Ultron. You can say all you want that he was faking, that he was uh, trying to be uh, humble, that he was trying to save his friend from being uh, whatever. But if that was the case for me, he wouldn't have let Mjolnir budge at all, personally. Um, for me, he wasn't worthy at this point in Age of Ultron. Because he hadn't told Tony about the truth about his parents. He knew at this point, and he didn't tell him. And when he was able to let that go and tell Tony the truth, it allowed him to begin the building blocks to becoming worthy again. And we see in this scene him finally showing how worthy he is and him just laying the smacketh down on Thanos. The combos that he rolls off here. I talk about this every single time I talk about this character or this film. Just the combos that he has with the hammer and the shield. He didn't practice those. He didn't rehearse those. He immediately knew exactly what to do and that's what makes Steve Rogers so great among everything else we've been talking about for the past, like, hour and a half. But um, when it comes down to it, at the very end, he watches as Tony makes the sacrifice to basically save the universe, not just the world, but the universe. And during this whole uh, follow-up, Tony's funeral, um, the viewing of Tony's final message... You see how much Tony's death has affected him. Because Tony, for the last five years, before the events of Endgame, got to live the life that Steve always wanted. And Steve looked back on. Um, he got to grow 
a little bit older. He got to have a daughter. He got to live as a married man, you know, in a house by the lake. Wonderful house, by the way. That is a dream house, if I have ever seen one. And you see when he's getting ready to send the stones back, this idea that, oh, Steve's back on another mission. Endless wartime. Steve has to keep going, going, going. Um, But something feels different. And you can see that. You can see that something's different on his face, in his mannerisms, his um, interactions with both uh, Sam and Bucky leading into this. Sam basically saying, like, hey, man, I, I, I could go with you. And in the grand scheme of things, Sam absolutely could have gone with him. If they're only going to be back in five, you know, five seconds, if everything went according to plan, there would have been no reason for him not to go. But Steve knew what he was doing. Steve knew what his plan was. And in my mind, so did Bucky. So did Bucky. Some people were really upset at the idea that, oh, he just said, you know, a cute line to Bucky and then left him alone. Bucky knew what was going on. Bucky knew exactly what was happening. Because, and this is key here, he says the line, I'm going to miss you, buddy. Why would he say that if Steve was only going to be gone five seconds? Bucky knew. They had that conversation. And in my mind, Bucky knew what the what he was going to do, but he didn't think he was coming back. And that's why he says, I'm going to miss you. So that is why he tells Sam, this is something I got to do alone, because this is ultimately, he's already made up his mind of what's he, what he's doing. And when he goes, he goes. And he doesn't come back. For a while, at least. Because Bucky immediately starts to turn away. He knows what's going on. And then he even he is surprised to see a small man sitting on a bench. And I loved how small he seemed, how small he looked as this older man. I get it. Age goes by. Um, your muscles deteriorate and stuff, even though that's never really been shown for a super soldier. But I love that he started off as scrawny Steve Rogers, and he kind of ends his story as scrawny Steve Rogers. Just the thematic parallels um, really get me. So... Him and uh, him and Sam have a conversation where Sam, you know, is just sad that there's going to be no more Captain America. And he asks him, you know, did something go right or did something go wrong? And Steve reveals that after he put the, all the stones back, he wanted to go after the life that Tony had always talked to him about and the life that he had been missing out on. And when... Sam brings up the idea that there is going to be no Captain, no more Captain America. Steve passes the shield to him. New shield, beautiful new shield. Um, I still tear up watching this scene. And seeing the expression on Sam's face at the shock of him being past this. He even looks back at Bucky. He's like, isn't this supposed to be you? And Bucky's like, nah, man, I'm going to go be a goat farmer. And you see Sam super unsure, and that's going to play into uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier. You see how unsure he is, and you see him kind of looking to Steve for any kind of validation. He basically says, you know, feels like it's someone else's, and Steve goes, it isn't. And 
he says, I'm not going to let you down. And he, you know, shakes his hand. He says, that's why it's yours. And we see the ring. Sam, of course, says, you're going to tell me about her. He says, no, no, I don't think I will. And then the waterworks. Every single time, ladies and gentlemen, I have watched this film at least six times now. And I cry at this scene. I don't care. I don't care how many times I've seen it. I'm probably always going to cry at this scene. But we find out that through everything that he's been through, watching his friend die, seeing um, Peggy in the flesh once again, he finally was able to let go of his depression. He was able to let go of this this self-imposed idea of responsibility, thinking that he's the only man who can solve everything. And he is able to find a... excuse me um he's able to find his happiness again he's able to finally rest in the same way that tony is finally able to rest um and in the same way that tony is constantly looking towards the future where pepper tells him we're gonna be okay and he's finally able to let the future go without him steve is finally able to look back at the past and make it his present again He's finally able to let go of the idea of endless wartime. He's finally able to let go of the idea that he, can, he can't he can survive without war and is finally able to go home. And what becomes, uh, or what was uh, Steve's nightmare in Age of Ultron finally becomes his promise at a better life. And this is so incredibly moving for me um because like as i touched on earlier i i suffer through some of the stuff that we talk about in this episode uh, depression loneliness um this inability to feel like you're doing anything right and also this intrinsic sense of responsibility that you have to you have to solve everyone's problems you, I have this, I've always had this weird white knight complex ever since I was uh, younger. And this idea that at some point you were going to get, that I am going to get to this point that I can let that go, let the world be how it's supposed to be, and, you know, pursue my happiness is... Um, It's incredible. It really is. Um, I, I, I didn't want to get too personal about this, but um, it's it's really it speaks to the heart of the character that I uh, that I've always really loved and I've always really been able to uh, relate to is um, I've always had this weird thing. I'm the uh, give you a little bit of info about me. You know, sixty nine episodes into the podcast. Um, I am the first child in my immediate family, and I am the oldest of our generation in my family. And I uh, have always had this weird, this weird sense of responsibility. Like I have to be successful. I have to um, fix problems. I have to be the one who makes solutions. And when I fall short, or when something happens that's out of my control, I take it really hard. And I take it really personally. And I am... That's something I'm working on every day. But this idea that... Um, 
at some point, regardless of you know how Steve got there, that Steve was able to overcome that idea and just live the life that he should have had um, gives me hope. It gives me a lot of... Um, uh, it gives me hope that I am at some point uh, going to be able to push through uh, this mindset that I've always had and that I am working on every day that I'm going to be able to uh, just let things be how they're going to be and stop taking responsibility for all of this stuff, whether it's um, whether I got this way from my upbringing or from my own personal insecurities. Uh, it doesn't matter. I just love that something that I go through, you know, on a day-to-day basis was so perfectly and just beautifully executed in the character of Steve Rogers in the MCU. Um, he goes back and he's able to live his life with Peggy, with the love of his life. And I love that about the character. I imagine that since Marvel and Disney are who Marvel and Disney are, this isn't the last we've seen of Cap. I mean, it definitely isn't the last we've seen of Cap since now Sam Wilson is Cap. But this isn't the last we've seen of Steve Rogers. But if this was it, if there was no more mention of Steve Rogers, if Steve Rogers never shows up ever again in the MCU for any reason, I would be okay with it. Because this is a fitting finale for him. Just in the way that Tony sacrificing himself was a fitting finale for him. And in the way that both of them are able to prove the other wrong from their very first argument in the Avengers way back in 2012. Um, This idea that uh, everything special about Steve came out of a bottle and that Tony is selfish and that he he wouldn't be the person to sacrifice himself for others. Both of them proved each other wrong because uh, Steve is able to show that what's special in him has always been special in him when it comes to lifting Mjolnir, when it comes to uh, leading the Avengers. And and Tony ultimately makes that sacrifice play and lays down on the wire for the rest of his friends to crawl over him. And it's, um, it's beautiful how they parallel each other and how they've always really paralleled each other and balanced themselves out. But for me... Um, Steve Rogers has the greatest arc across these MCU films. Uh, I could not be more happy for this character. I've always, like I said, I've always loved Captain America as a character. Just, I've always loved what he represented, what he stood for. But it wasn't really until the MCU that I looked at Captain America as someone that I related to. Um, I have never in my entire life been someone who looks like Steve Rogers or could look like Steve Rogers but in the moments, the quiet moments the sadness, the loneliness, the depression the self-imposed idea of responsibility I connected to the character in a way that I have never connected to that character before so, um, yeah I think I've said pretty much all I need to say about the character um, I just wanted to talk about this character since uh, this was my birthday week, and I really wanted to talk about something that I could just ramble on for, <laughs> to be honest. And um, I want to say thank you for going on this ride with me. Um, I really appreciate it. Um, I don't, I know I say it a lot, but um, I really do appreciate everyone who listens to this. 
it really helps me because I'm trying to learn how to get better at this. Um, it helps for me to talk about stuff that I'm passionate about, stuff that's going on in my life. Um, and I really appreciate that all of you have taken the time to listen. We're, we're over 5,000 listeners on this podcast. I love that. Um, and I honestly, I know a lot of people say this for, oh, for clicks and do the Patreon. But like, I, I really, I, I honestly value all of you for taking time out of your day to listen to uh, some guy in Los Angeles uh, rambling about the stuff that he cares about. So um, that is going to do it for the uh, entree course of this week's episode. Um, I love this character. I've always loved this character. It's going to be a long time before I really, um, I think, connect to a character in the MCU like I have with Steve Rogers. But the future is bright for the MCU and um, if nothing else just like Steve Rogers to go towards the future sometimes you need to look towards the past but sometimes you also need to look inside yourself and know that no matter what's happened in that past that you are greater than your mistakes you are greater than your failures and you can look at adversity right in the face and say I can do this all day Whew, got a little uh, got a little heavy there for a second, got a little personal there, so um, just wanted to kind of put this out before we jump into the weekly review. Um, we talked a little bit about mental health today, and I really wanted to make it a point to tell people that um, if you are going through any of this kind of stuff, that you are not alone, and that anytime I am here to listen along with plenty of other people so i just wanted to put that out there um mental health is a serious issue always has been and it's good to let people know that you're there even when they um maybe they've heard it before maybe uh (laughs) they get sick of you saying that but you telling some of the people who uh go through this stuff on a day-to-day basis that you're there is uh is worth the world to them so for those people who do uh, have friends who uh, need them. Thank you for being allies for them. And for the people who go through this kind of stuff, you are not alone. You do have friends, and you've always got a friend in me. Went a little Disney there for a second. <laughs> but uh, yeah, just wanted to make sure I said that because um, it is important. And uh, anyway, on with the show. I hope you all love and appreciate that intro as much as I do. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, that was Spice Girls Wannabe, uh, the intro for the weekly review for The Boys. We are debuting The Boys on the weekly review. Every week, we're going to be checking out a new episode for that show. It's a little little different because uh, the show did drop on streaming, so I am really... Um, I'm really taking the alternative route with checking out this show, but I have heard so many good things about it. I remember reading this comic back when it was coming out in 0607 and just not liking it. 
Um, it was very different. Uh, it was definitely a, uh, a comic of its time, I think. Kind of in the same vein that the, uh, the Ultimates comic is very of its time. Uh, if you go back and read the first and even the second volume as well, they're very much um, time in a bottle. And this comic really was too. So when I heard that they were making it into a show, I was a little shocked because there were certain things about it that um, I didn't know how they were going to translate it. But from the looks of this first episode, super good. So um, just a quick note on the intro. Um, it was voted on officially uh, on Twitter. You can feel free to uh, follow us on Twitter at Pod. That's at Pod, And the exact same handle for Instagram as well. But I posted up a, uh, a poll for the intro song. Uh, there were three choices, uh, or four choices actually, because Twitter gives you four choices. And the three front runners were Barracuda by Heart, London Calling by The Clash, and of course Wannabe by Spice Girls. And as you can tell, Wannabe won out. So every week you're going to get to hear that music. And if you would like to have a voice on what we should check out, uh, potential ideas for what to do for a weekly review segment in the future, and you want to be able to have your voice heard in the polls that we do put up on Twitter, like I said, give us a follow um, and definitely check us out. But here and now we are checking out episode one of The Boys entitled Name of the Game. And right off the bat, these are not your grandma's heroes. Uh, I really, really dug the vibe of this. It feels like... And I'm going to try and word this as best I can. It feels like if you took, like, Zack Snyder's general tone and kind of mashed it up with James Gunn's sensibilities and his kind of framing and stuff, you would get the boys. I really, really dug just how they did their world building. The uh, effects don't look cheap. The costumes don't look cheap. I really, really like it. And the best part about this is just the idea behind the show and behind the comic and behind the entire concept of the boys is that this is how the world really honestly would probably be if superheroes did walk among us. And that is very, very jaded and a lot of moral moral gray area. So I have my notes here. I really wanted to um, talk about this as much as I could, but again, I'm taking this episode by episode, so I'm trying to make sure I don't uh, get too far ahead of myself. Um, but the big uh, leads in this episode were, just like in the comic, Huey and Starlight. Uh, Starlight is Annie January, and she is a new recruit to the Seven, which is basically this version, uh, or this world's version of the Justice League. You have, I'm going to try and rattle this off, you have the Homelander, you have Queen Maeve, you have Black Noir, you have the Deep, you have um, Translucent... Oh, and I'm missing one. Missing one. Oh, A-Train. A-Train and then Starlight is brought in to kind of replace, I think his name's Lamplighter. Um, kind of the Green Lantern-esque character uh, on the premier superhero team. And this superhero team uh, works differently from the traditional idea of the Justice League in that this is a corporate team. This is a team that is uh, funded... Uh, 
funded by, was created by the Vought Corporation, which seems to kind of have a monopoly on the superhero business. Um, and their premier league is the Seven. They're the, the I think they call them the world's most mighty, I think is what they're called. But I really, really dug it. And Starlight brings this kind of, um, just brings this real like aw shucks kind of quality to it. You really get the sense that this is something that she genuinely loves to do. And you see that in her audition tape. And what I loved about this was that they really treated it almost like, um, like an agency like a legit like acting agency being out here in los angeles and being part of the uh acting community being part of the film community a lot of stuff that they showed on here was stuff that i connected with and i don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing um probably a bit of both but i really overall enjoyed uh her kind of bringing her uh her really innocent and honestly naive um, worldview into a jaded company like Vought and The Seven. And you see that right away. I'm going to talk about The Seven in just a second. Uh, first of all, I w before that, I want to get to Huey. Huey is our lead. Huey is our guy. Um, Huey is just this uh, down-on-his-luck kind of really... Um, lovable loser and at the very beginning of the episode his girlfriend robin is killed by a train who is this world's flash um or flash adjacent i guess and it's just it's beautifully disgusting the scene where she dies because her and Huey are walking down the sidewalk she kind of absentmindedly steps into the you know the gutter of the road just like you know people have done i'm sure i've done like a hundred times just not even thinking about it and the two of them are holding each other's hands and then there's just suddenly like this sonic boom that sounds and all of a sudden robin's gone uh blood is like starting to slowly splatter onto huey's face from the right side and you see as the camera pans out again kind of speaking to what i was saying about Zack snyder's kind of tone and his uh, visual style uh the slow-mo shot of just robin basically being exploded through by a train and it is just oh my god so good and it just immediately tells you this is the kind of show that this is going to be so strap in uh huey from this point on is racked with guilt, with a little bit of, honestly, PTSD. He suffers a couple panic attacks in the episode, which I thought was really, really uh, well done, uh, well acted, and made sense for the character. But um, speaking of A-Train, let's talk about the Seven. We didn't really get a whole lot from the characters here. Um, I will be honest with you, when I was reading the comic, I made it probably, looking back on it now, about halfway through the run, and then I just kind of dropped off because I just I didn't like what I was seeing but I will say just from this uh just from this viewing of this episode I really think that they're honestly probably doing it better than the comic did so no no disrespect to Garth Ennis but like they're they're, they're doing it better than the comic did and that ultimately falls on the uh, the main characters here, some of them being, of course, the Seven. So we talked about A-Train a little bit. He's basically like every, um, every 
famous athlete today, like your uh, your LeBrons, your uh, Kawhi Leonard's, your um, really just these guys who enjoy being famous, and you see that he's just got kind of this like whatever man, like I I'm doing my business, everyone's kind of below me, I'm moving, I'm moving, I'm moving, and I liked that. I like that this is really how it would be for an athletic character like this. So I liked that. Um, Black Noir. There's really nothing to say about him. He's their Batman. Um, he really just kind of was there. Uh, he doesn't speak, which I think is pretty much what he was in the comic as well. Um, and we really didn't get to see what he could do, but I'm interested. Uh, Translucent got a lot to do in this episode. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit more about him later, but just off the bat, um, him being their Invisible Man, almost their Martian Manhunter, uh, analog was a great choice and the fact that he's a total friggin pervert is um, understandable because that's exactly what I'm sure a lot of juvenile people who got the ability of invisibility would do with that ability and it's um it's interesting he's always he also seems to kind of be the money man you see him like going over their finances and everything uh, so I liked that uh, next up Queen Maeve very, I mean, it's their Wonder Woman, but she seems really interesting, uh, more interesting than the comic. Just in general, as just a general rule going through this entire uh, weekly review series going from here on, um, I, I am going to put my uh, flag in the, in, the, in the sand, draw my line in the sand, and just say that this show is going to do it better than the comics. I just, I can feel it, I can feel it. Um, but I really liked how she really played off this idea that she's kind of jaded. Um, Starlight looks to her for help at one point after her, um, her encounter with the Deep, more on that later. And um, she, you just kind of get the feeling that, yeah, she's, she's possibly been subjected to something like that. And she's just over it. She doesn't like, she has no sympathy for her. And then we come to the Deep. Um, just what a piece of garbage um the deep is expertly played by i think his name's uh chase crawford and he is just such such an asshole um you get the feeling pretty early on that he's gonna be an okay guy that he's i mean he's the aquaman he's the guy who's supposed to be like yeah i know there's all these gods running around but like hey i'm the everyman i'm the guy who's who's cool and uh, he uses that to really manipulate Starlight and really get her into a very uncomfortable position where he basically forces her to blow him under the duress and the threat of getting everyone to kick her out if he uh, doesn't get what he wants. And it's disgusting. It's awful. Um, I'm sure there's going to be some kind of uh, recompense for this. I just... I feel it in my bones, and uh, justifiably so, because this was awful, and he is a uh, just awful human being. But the real big one I want to talk about, the one I want to just put some time into, is the frickin' the Homelander. He's fantastic. I am not familiar with this actor at all. His name's Anthony Starr, but he is so freaking good in this role. Uh, you totally buy that he's Blue Boy Scout, like, all-American, just cheeseball. Um, they're having their meeting, and, like, there's all this stuff, like, they're arguing about finances and stuff, and he's like, I don't want to hear about that. What I want to hear about is, who did you guys save today? Come on. I want to hear about who you guys saved. And it's just like, 
Oh God! They even they even talk about um, certain people. I don't remember who it was. Basically saying like they're all awful except for Homelander. Homelander Homelander's just some like goody two shoes. But you see at the end of this episode that he is not because he uh, after a meeting with. Um, Stillwell, who is also a fantastic character and kind of the manager of the Seven, um, he does some shady stuff, and I'm sure that this is not the last we're going to see of that. So, um, pretty much this is kind of setting the table for Huey and his story, and then he runs into Billy Effing Butcher, um, played to perfection by Carl Urban, and Billy Butcher is just so, so cool. He is... Um, Basically, he's, I guess, in depending on how you want to look at it, the villain of the series and recruits Huey in an attempt to um, basically exact revenge on the Seven. We're not sure at this point in time in the story uh, why he's going after them, but there's definitely something deep-seated there. And I'm just... I love the scenes between uh, Billy and Huey. They bounce off of each other so well. They're really, really, really well done. Um, and I'm really excited to see what this brings. I loved when he came back for Huey uh, to take out Translucent. Translucent finds out about their scheme, about Huey trying to bug uh, the Seven's headquarters and goes after Huey and his job. And it's so cool, his entrance. Like... Um, Translucent has like a TV picked up he's gonna smash Huey with and all of a sudden just Billy just comes barreling through the store with his car and hits Translucent gets out of his car with his signature crowbar from the comics London Calling by the Clash is blaring that's why it almost was the uh, intro for this and he just goes to town what an entrance for him he, he had already been a major presence in the episode but what a I guess a re-entrance for him into the show loved it uh fantastic uh little fight scene between all of them and I am really excited to see where this goes I love the uh take on superheroes versus corporate fame I love that that's an aspect of this and that it's something that we're going to be exploring going forward. How does this? How does the Justice League change when they have corporate sponsors and they answer to a uh, a board of directors? Like, I'm really interested to see how that works. And then, um, just overall, just one hell of a start. Really, really excited. I cannot wait to watch episode two, and I am so stoked, so stoked. Um, but yeah, that's going to do it for uh, this week's weekly review. Let me know what you thought of The Boys. Have you watched it yet? Have you watched it all the way through? Have you watched some of the episodes? I really want to hear about this, and I am ah, I'm so excited. It's a, it's a fresh take on the superhero genre. This is what I think nowadays for a lot of people is going to be what um, Watchmen was for a lot of people back in the 80s. So this is this is good stuff. I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, so stay tuned next week for episode two of The Boys. And for now, let's jump on over to this week's Comics Countdown. <laughs>
Ooh, welcome back to this week's Comics Countdown. This is the segment of our show where I talk about the comics that I think you should be picking up, whether it's at your local comic book shop, whether it's on Comixology, or however you get your comics. These are the ones I think you should definitely be taking a look at. We'll be talking about each book's title, the creative team behind each book, as well as a brief synopsis of each book as well. And of course, each synopsis will be accompanied by my synopsis voices. If you have a synopsis voice you would like to request, feel free to do so on either of our social media or through email because I'm an old man and I still read emails. But before we get to this week's picks, we got to do the Geeksplain pick of the week of last week. Title pending. And last week's pick is House of X number two. Holy crap, guys. Um, just wow. Uh, written by Jonathan Hickman, art by Pepe Larraz. So, so good. And yet at the same time, so confusing. Um, Brief spoilers here, I don't want to spoil too much because this is a comic that you should be reading. Um, but man, it really it really frames Moira McTaggart as quite possibly the most important person in the X-Men universe, in the history of the X-Men. So I loved it. I loved this reinterpretation of the character. Uh, spoiler, uh, it's just going to be a spoiler. Uh, she's revealed to be a mutant. And um, her power is so interesting, especially when you find her intertwined with another mutant who has a power that would, uh, on paper, theoretically clash with her. So I really, really dug this issue. You should definitely be picking this up. If you haven't yet, pick up House of X number one, Powers of X number one, and House of X number two, because the next book in the series might be showing up on this very list. So that is the pick of the week of last week. And... I just, man, it is mind-blowing what Jonathan Hickman is doing with the X-Men. But that's last week. Let's go to this week's picks. We have one, two, three, four, five, six books for you here. And we are starting it off with Batman Universe number two of six, written by Brian Michael Bendis with art by Nick Darrington. That's right. You heard that correctly. I'm recommending a Brian Michael Bendis DC book. But it is not the Superman books. It is not anything that he has ruined just yet. Um, it's Batman. And I really did not think I was going to like this book, guys. I didn't I didn't think I was going to like it. Um, but I picked up Batman Universe number one, honestly, being completely transparent here, for the Nick Darrington art. I love Nick Darrington's art. And uh, this book really won me over. This is basically the collection of the uh, giant Superman and Batman books that were uh, Walmart exclusives actually co compiled together and released in comics uh, or comic shops. So really, really good stuff. Let's jump into the synopsis here. Available to comic shops for the first time. The quest for the secret of the stolen Fabergé egg and its buyer continues as Batman teams up with Green Arrow against the Riddler, then travels to Gorilla City. But is the egg's strange energy adversely affecting the Dark Knight's mind? These stories were originally published in Batman Giant number 5 and 6. So, um, super, super excited about this, um just the, the like i said the book won me over if you haven't yet try and find a copy of batman universe number one um or else i think you'll probably be lost because a lot happens in that book uh like i said if nothing else pick it up for the nick darrington art but brian michael bendis continues to um show why he works a lot better with um grounded street level characters <sighs> 
So yeah, moving on. Uh, next up, we have Miles Morales Spider-Man number nine, written by Saladin Ahmed with art by Javi Garon. Um, this book is really um, it's starting to fall. It's starting to fall, and you can tell by the placement here that it's starting to fall out of favor with me. Um, the inconsistent art is really starting to bother me, but I'm still really enjoying the take on Miles' world. I'm really enjoying Saladin Ahmed's writing. Um, I'm intrigued to see what's going on with this villain. Uh, for the last issue, Miles has been uh, in captivity. He was captured and is being experimented on. But I'm really, especially now that we got the uh, solicits for Miles Morales number 10, I'm really just kind of picking this up so that I know where he's at when number 10 comes out. So let's jump into the synopsis here. If Miles is going to escape this new villain, their shadowy masters and diabolical tests, he'll need help. Good thing his dad's a former agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., and there's no price Jeff wouldn't pay to get his son back. But the trade may come back to haunt them as one of the most formidable foes Miles has ever faced returns, featuring the last of a series of covers by Into the Spider-Verse art director Patrick O'Keefe. So yeah, that's a good point as well. Uh, if you haven't been picking up this book, the last few covers have been done by Patrick O'Keefe, who was just instrumental in the art style of Into the Spider-Verse, and he that really reflects in the uh, covers of this book. They've been absolutely gorgeous, so definitely check this out. Next up, we have Detective Comics number 1009, written by Pete Tomasi, with art by Doug Monkey. Um, this looks really interesting, guys. Uh, I'll jump into the synopsis, and then we'll talk about it. Takia's shot begins. Deadshot has returned to Gotham City following a long stint with the Suicide Squad, and Batman fears that without the oversight of Amanda Waller, Floyd Lawton will go back to his old ways. Meanwhile, after taking Lex Luthor's offer, Mr. Freeze begins taking action to get exactly what he wants and killing anyone who stands in his way. So yeah, lots of stuff. Um, I'm super excited. Anytime Deadshot and Batman cross paths, I am just, I'm there for it. Uh, especially because, at least in the comics, they've been treating Deadshot really, really well. Um, he's basically been the linchpin in the Suicide Squad books. So I'm really excited to see this new Floyd Lawton after his trials and tribulations in the Suicide Squad run into Batman. And then we did get the reveal at the end of last issue that uh, Lex Luthor, it, or or Lex Luthor has sent out the invitation to Mr. Freeze, and it looks like here he has accepted it. So I'm really excited, looking forward to this book for sure. Next up, we have Invaders number 8, written by Chip Zdarsky, with art by Carlos Magno in Butch Geese. Or Geese, or Geese. I'm sorry, I said that wrong. I apologize. Um, really excited. This book is just so freaking good! Um, I love everything about this book it's been so good so far and the cover looks fantastic for this going to be getting more uh namor and hopefully more human torch as well kind of diving into the uh mad king stuff that namor has been focused on so let's jump into the synopsis here dead in the water part two how did Namor change the world? All is finally revealed here as the Winter Soldier tracks down the world's greatest threat. Meanwhile, the Torch's life changes forever, and Captain America deals with the fallout as Roxxon targets Atlantis. 
So yeah, really excited. I love the world building here. They're really using every single bit of the Marvel Universe to tell this story. And if you haven't jumped on the Invaders book, you need to, especially if you're a Captain America, Winter Soldier, Namor, or Human Torch fan. Next up, we have Event Leviathan, number three of six, written by Brian Michael Bendis with art by Alex Maleve. Once again, I know, I know, but I caught up on the last two issues of Event Leviathan and... I gotta say, guys, I liked him. Um, Alex Maleev is doing some of the best work of his career, and the art in this book is some of the most beautiful art that DC is currently putting out. So I would absolutely recommend this, and especially with the um, with the cliffhanger from last week's issue. Really looking forward to it. So let's jump into the synopsis here. The world's greatest detectives. Batman. Green Arrow. Lois Lane. Plastic Man, The Question, and Martian Manhunter have gathered to solve the mystery behind the true identity of Leviathan's leaders and the destruction of the world's top intelligence agencies. Red Hood is their leading suspect, and he is on the loose. Plus, the silencer takes her shot. This mystery will unleash a new evil on the DC Universe. So yeah, um, last uh, last issue for this book uh, left off with basically the entire Bat family going after Red Hood because they believe him to be the guy behind Leviathan. I am like 95% sure that it's not Jason Todd, but this alienation of his character might just end up being that new evil unleashed on the DC Universe because um, Jason has walked a fine line for a long time and I'm really intrigued how the story is going to affect him. Um, my big question for this is where is Ralph Dibney? Ralph Dibney is arguably the greatest detective ever to grace the ranks of the Justice League. And yet you have Plastic Man? You want to call him the world's greatest detective? And you bring in Plastic Man? I don't know. I just, I, I, I think it's a damn shame that Ralph Dibney has been uh, screwed over like this. And um, I'm just, blah. But anyway, uh, definitely pick this book up. Um, if nothing else, like I said, for the Alex Maleev art, for sure. And then finally, the big book of the week is Powers of X number two of six, written by Jonathan Hickman with art by R.B. Silva. Um, I'm really hoping this book isn't as weird as Powers of or Powers of Ten number one. I know I said Powers of X just now, but it's Powers of Ten, House of X. Um, it seems like the first issue was really to just kind of set the stage for one of the big reveals from uh, House of X number two. So I'm hoping that this book deals more with uh, the stuff kind of spiraling out of just the ridiculousness that came out of House of X number two. And I'm really looking forward to seeing how this affects the book going forward. So let's jump into the synopsis here. As Xavier sows the seeds of the past, the X-Men's future blossoms into trouble for all mutandom. Superstar writer Jonathan Hickman continues reshaping the X-Men's past, present, and future with breakout artist R.B. Silva. So not a lot to chew on here, but I am really, really looking forward to this book. Um, it's been fantastic so far, and I just... Oh, 
Jonathan Hickman is doing the Lord's work with the X-Men relaunch right here. So really looking forward to it. So to recap, we have Batman Universe number two of six, Miles Morales number nine, Detective Comics number 1009, Invaders number eight, Event Leviathan number three of six, and Powers of Ten number two of six. If there are any books that I missed, feel free to let me know. I love discovering all kinds of comics. Uh, I've actually been recommended a couple comics that I'm definitely going to be checking out in the past couple weeks. I uh, got some really good feedback from last week's episode of the Best Crime Comics. If you haven't checked that out yet, please do so. And uh, yeah, so that is going to do it for this week's Comics Countdown. Of course, I am looking forward to Powers of Ten the most. Um, it's just, man, the, the X-Men books are really going to be completely different landscape-wise from last year to this year to next year, and I cannot wait to see what Marvel does with its Merry Mutants. And that is going to do it for this week's episode. We covered a lot of ground here. We went over two hours. Um, Thank you for listening all the way through. Um, Thank you for indulging me in my love of the Star Spangled Man theme. I love that song so much. Um, And thank you for letting me ramble about... um, my favorite character, my uh, my own personal issues, and um, all that stuff. Covered a lot of ground today. Um, I just want to once again say thank you for uh, sticking with us. Um, we will be back next week for episode 70. Really looking forward to that, hitting another milestone. Uh, we are just 30 episodes away from 100, and that kind of freaks me out. I'm not going to lie. Um, but I'm really excited about it. I'm really excited to bring more content to you guys and gals. Uh, let me know what you thought about all the uh, stuff we covered today. I would love to. I'm trying to get a mailbag segment going. Ask me any question you want, whether it's comics, uh, film, TV, whatever related. Feel free to email those to geeksplained at gmail.com. And hopefully, uh, starting next week, we'll be able to kind of unpack some of our mailbag. I would love to uh, answer some questions, and I would love to just have conversations with you guys, because that's what this is about at the end of the day. So uh, let me know uh, what you thought of everything today, whether it's about Captain America. Have you watched Endgame again for the 1200th time yet? Um, What did you think about The Boys? Are you as excited to watch it as I have if you haven't seen it yet? If you have seen it, um, what do you think about the show overall? No spoilers, but I want to know. And then, um, yeah, send in any kind of questions or anything like that to the mailbag at geeksplained at gmail.com uh, feel free to uh, check us out on Instagram and Twitter at geeksplainedpod that's at geeksplainedpod and uh, give us a follow would love that uh, also feel free to review us on iTunes and uh, give us a star rating however you want to rate us and please let me know what you think of the show so um, we'll be back next week with more awesome geektacular stuff same geek time, same geek channel, but for now, for Geek Explain, this is Eric Zana. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you next time. When Captain America throws his mighty shield, all those who chose to oppose his shield must yield. If he's led to a fight and a duel is due, then the red and the white and the blue will come through when Captain America throws his mighty
kiss me twice, then kiss me once again. It's been a long, long time. Haven't felt like this, my dear, since can't remember when. It's been a long, long time. You'll never know. Kiss me once again It's been a long